0: Everything changes in today's marketplace, technology, competition, staff, and even clients. Everyone is doing business differently than they once did. The challenge many face is keeping up with the change. Welcome to Thriving in Uncertainty with your host, Meredith Elliott Powell. By learning from the insights and expertise of guests like those you'll hear today, you can thrive in ways you never thought possible. Now, here is Meredith Elliott Powell.
1: Welcome to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter how the marketplace changes or what this economy does. I'm Meredith Elliott Powell, your host, and today's guest is a guest that I have wanted to interview for a long time, and we're going to talk about the topic of the impact of leadership. The impact leadership has on people, success, and probably most importantly, Um, results. I'd like to welcome to the show our guest, Liz Wiseman. She is a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the Game of Work. Welcome to the show, Liz. Uh, it's very good to be here. Well, you probably didn't know, but I have been stalking your work for um, for quite a while, and it is so impressive. There's so much that I want to um, talk about as it relates to leadership today, but I'd love if, um, for our audience and those listening, is if you could just give us a little bit um, of your background. Tell us a little bit more about you. Well, let me see. I... Uh I went when I went.
2: I'm a native Californian, went off to school at Brigham Young University and I graduated there from their MBA program. And all of my colleagues were going to work for what you might call normal companies, like the kind of companies that would come recruit from an MBA program, like IBM and Procter and Gamble and Bain and McKinsey and uh, Boston Consulting Group, all of these companies. And I went to work for this little maverick software company and all of my Co-workers thought I went to go work for a toothpaste manufacturer. <laughs> because The company was called Oracle, and no one had really heard of it. And I, I wanted to go back to Northern California to Silicon Valley, where I was from. And you know, it's just sort of at the beginning of this software explosion, and I just happened to join this rapidly growing, really kind of rebel maverick. Company, and I thought I was going to work there for maybe a year, and then go back to school and get my PhD. And I really, I kind of got addicted to this culture and this uh, what I thought was very much a meritocracy. And so I spent 17 years at Oracle. And you know, when you join a young, growing software company, you know they're gobbling up talent, and. I kind of got gobbled up at that and thrown into management as a child. I mean, literally, I was twenty four years old, and they're like, huh, okay, <laughs> so I'm a year I'm a year out of business school. I know nothing. I mean, I've just barely figured out which way is up. I've you know I've made some contributions to the company, but they're like, Liz, you're now in charge of training for the company worldwide. And um, Larry Ellison, you know, our CEO wants yeah. a university, so go build Oracle University and make it work in 120 countries. And and so I had to like, figure out how to build a university. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> but I'm like, well, I, don't, I only like work 10 miles from Stanford. Maybe I'll just like go ask the Stanford people how to do this. And so <laughs> I just went. And, and I learned how to build this university. But more than anything, I learned how to manage because I didn't know – what I was doing. And so in some ways I ended up becoming a real student of management and leadership in this process. I think not because it was my college department or my job, it was just survival. It was really survival. Just trying to figure out like how to thrive in uncertainty, you know, to, to your whole point, like, how do I do this leadership thing? I feel like I'm still a kid and I feel very underqualified for a very grown-up job, you know, and I tried to point out to these people, like, <laughs> these are jobs that grown-ups hold. Like, I am, I am a child. This, is like, should be against the law in some way, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I got teased a little bit for this, and, you know, I had to eventually say, like, okay, yeah, I get
1: I'm underqualified for this job, but who wants a job they're qualified for? I mean, great point. What did you actually join Oracle to do? So what was your was first hired, role? I was hired as a program manager in the
2: consulting division of the company. And we had about 2,000 people in the company at the time I joined. So, you know, in startup lifespan, it's like a It's like a middle schooler at this point. You know, it really hasn't come of age. But we've got about 2,000 people and I'm hired to organize training programs for the consulting division of the company. And so, you know, organized classes, and then I taught some classes. And then they were starting up this corporate training group, and I ended up joining that group, Meredith, of all things, teaching programming. And and I've come out of business school, and I, I think I made a mistake. This should be like a word of caution to everyone coming out of school, like be careful what you put on your resume. I put that I had taken a Fortran programming class, which was true. Uh-huh. And I had put on my resume that I was a teaching assistant in the computer lab at the business school. But I was like honestly what I did was help people like print documents and put floppy disks in the computer and like figure out some of the basics. But they decided that I should teach programming. They're like, Liz, we need someone to teach programming and, like, we're going to have you do that. And I was going to teach programming to people. They were hiring all these people coming out of MIT and Caltech, you know, and it with programming degrees, like bachelors and masters and PhDs and AI and programming and EE. And I don't even know what I'm doing. And I'm not suddenly teaching programming to these people. And I, I actually consider it. Maybe it's why I brought it up. I consider it kind of the coup of my career. Most people are interested in my recent work, but I just feel like, wow, that was—I'm so proud of that because yeah. I had to learn how to. I had to learn programming. I had to learn to think like a programmer, and then I learned had to learn how to teach it to people who were better than I was at all of this. I, they just were new to this particular software staff that I was teaching,
1: and it was it was it was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. Well, you know, I'm, what I think, what I find is so interesting about it is that um, it's basically a situation that a lot of organizations are in today. They're growing like crazy. If they were, if they had the luxury of finding really experienced people, they would, but they don't. More than anything, you're just trying to get and find talent with the raw material. And then really grow them, you know, grow them into what they needed to be. So, I kind of have a two-part question for you. Number one is, what do you think really served you well in making you successful in that position? And then fast forward as so you hand out, you hang out for 17 years. I want to know… What made the leap to the second piece? But for anybody listening who's in a job right now, who wants to take a promotion that might be over their head or is in a position thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure I can swim here. What is it that, I mean, what did you do? What were the nuts and bolts of making you successful to thrive in that uncertainty? You
2: know, I I guess... If I had to pick one thing, I would probably say it's maybe I was born with an overabundance of what Carol Dweck calls this growth mindset, nice. but it's I, I you know it's this combination of humility and confidence, and uh, you know in fact I was just at a um, a bit of a informal high school reunion, one of our classmates just passed away. And one of my classmates came up to me and and she was saying some things and she said, Liz, I've always admired your confidence. And I thought that's a strange thing, but that, you know, like I think I had this back in high school, which is sort of this humility of, you know, what I get it. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the most talented, you know, I am decidedly average Having that willingness to then say, okay, so then I need to learn. And I probably, I probably, you know, have this humility that says, you know what, I'm not embarrassed to be learning. I'm not embarrassed to be trying and experimenting. Like, I feel like I'm not trying to maintain some pedestal that I don't want to fall from. So I have that, but then some sort of confidence that just says, you know what, Other people learned how to do this. I can learn how to do it. And I remember it was very much that mentality when I got asked to teach programming. I thought, well, I don't really, I'm not a programmer. I'm not degreed in programming like these people. I don't, this hasn't been my life path. But then I looked at these people and realized, you know, they had to learn it at some point. They just started it a little earlier than I did. And if they can learn it, well, then why can't I learn it? And so it never felt daunting. And um, you know, I had this wonderful colleague. Uh, her name is Leslie Stern, and she actually had taught programming. And, uh, she she had learned programming, and she was you know had a degree in CS from UC Berkeley, and it was very bright. And and we we partnered up. And she's like, Liz, you know, what? I need to teach you to think like a programmer. And I'm like, okay, teach me how to think like a programmer. She's like, you got to change one variable at a time, and and t- small change, you know, recompile your code, see if it works, and make the next small change. And you know, I had been trying to make all these changes, like, ah, oh, my program's not compiling. And and she taught me this very methodical way to experiment and test and experiment and test. And not only did it serve me well in programming, it served me, it served me really well um, in management. Like, okay, don't don't ask people to do things you know, like don't ask people to climb Everest. like ask people to get to base camp and then try to go to the next level and see how you're doing, and then like even fall back and rest. and like this idea of working in in thin slices and experimenting and testing. And it served me well as a researcher.
1: Mm-hmm. the um what I love about what you're talking about is because I do think it's so important for um success today. Really important for leaders is this. what you're talking about is this beautiful combination of being confident but blended with humbleness in the sense that you're sure enough of yourself that you give off an energy that you can lead and that people should follow you, balanced with being okay with the fact that maybe you don't have all the answers and you need to lean um, on on other people, and I want to talk about that in a minute because I really want to get into um, I really want to get into your book um, Multipliers. But but I want to um, I want to go to there. You are at um, Oracle for seventeen years, and I, I can't even imagine. It must have just been growing and changing at rapid um, you know at rapid speed and. What what was the decision um, to leave and make the transition to doing the work that you do now?
2: You know, it's really interesting that transition came because I, you know, I had this job that was constantly changing, and I was underqualified for every job I ever had. Mm-hmm. And every time I would just figure out what I was doing, they gave me a bigger job, and and some of that came in the form of promotion and and visibly recognizable. Um, you know, bigger challenges, but some of it was just harder work. And, and then after about 17 years, I started to get good at what I was doing. And I felt in some ways legit, (laughs) you know, like I finally knew what I was doing. And most people would say, that's a great job. Like that's where you kind of milk that. And, and actually for me, it felt terrible to feel qualified. Hmm. And you know, like somehow the, the thrill of learning wasn't there in my job every day. You know, the company had started to to flatten out some of its growth and become a little bit more calcified in the way that it you know it innovated. So I left, not because I didn't like my job, I left a job I loved with people I loved. And I left a great gig. Everyone thought I was nuts, I was like <laughs> full <laughs> on a crazy nuts like my, my colleagues would have lunch with me you know every now and then kind of like okay when are we getting the band back together like when are you coming back or when you're going back to corporate world i'm like oh no i'm not going to go back like i'm not going to go run another university i i'm going to go do something that i don't know how to do which of course you know leave, leaves the career wide open there's a lot yeah. <laughs> of things you know how to do right but you know, so I, I, I pivoted and I didn't, it's not like I went off and went to medical school or something. I I went out and started doing executive coaching work okay. because, you know, I'd had some experience as an executive. I had learned and had gotten to be pretty good at this, but wanted to help a lot of other people going through that transition. And it was actually out in my coaching work where I was working with someone who was mental level um, brilliant, you know, very much on the genius uh, side of that of spectrum. And, you know, I had a pedigree education. Like so many of the people I had worked with, he was absolutely brilliant, but he was just killing his team.
1: Mm.
2: It was like, um, like he was bringing the brilliance, but kind of squashing the energy and intelligence of his team. And it's a pattern I had seen over and over again as I was leaving, and particularly as I was working around a lot of really smart people, and I noticed back in my Oracle days that, that just being smart doesn't mean you create a smart team. Like I have seen really intelligent people dumb down an organization. I'm sure everyone listening has seen this, where a really smart person walks in the room and people shut up and they hold back. And they start to play safe. And and what I watched is I watched under certain leaders, people become a fraction of themselves. I thought it was fascinating. Whereas other leaders, when this person walks in a room, like their intelligence actually magnifies the intelligence of others that that they're smart, but other people around them get to be smart. it's like they use their intelligence as a tool, not a weapon. Mm-hmm. I mean, haven't we seen people weaponize their intelligence? Absolutely. Yes. And, and I left, you know, for the reasons I mentioned, but this, this observation I had about these two different kinds of leaders was one of several observations I had from my experience as a practitioner. And it was in coaching this man and helping him try to see that his intelligence could be used to amplify the intelligence of his team, that I realized, um, actually, I went out looking for some research, like, okay, who's written about this? Who's studied this phenomenon? Because I'm trying to help my coachee. Turns out no one had. And, you know, it's funny. I had that same that same experience that I had back when I was asked to teach programming to programmers and I thought well I don't know how to do this but they learned, so I can learn that I realized no one had studied or written about this and um, you know in my time at Oracle I had hired a lot of academics like Jim Collins and Clay Christensen and CK Prahalad and maybe because I knew them and was familiar with them I wasn't overly intimidated by them and I thought oh well, someone like a Jim Collins could study this and figure it out. I'm like, I know Jim, and Jim's great. Oh, I so hope Jim's not listening to this. Um, I've actually told him this. Like, like Jim is brilliant, and he's one of my heroes. But I'm like, he's just a guy, you know? He learned how to do that kind of research. Then, And I can do that as well. And Perfect. Well, hey, I you don't know if arrogant or
1: humble, but it's just
2: like, I can learn.
1: Yeah. And, and we're, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from break, I want to dive into the research and I want to talk about this idea of leadership and its impact and people who actually, well, I'm going to save how you titled and defined um, those two types of leaders. So join us in a minute with more with Liz Wiseman and the multiplier effect.
2: To business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: Are you ready to learn the business strategies you need to succeed no matter what this economy does? Are you interested in learning how the top organizations and how successful leaders are making change work for their companies and using uncertainty as their greatest competitive advantage? Then join the thousands of business owners, sales professionals, and entrepreneurs who have found the answers. Business Growth Expert Meredith Elliott Powell. Author of Thrive, Strategies for Success in Uncertainty, offers powerful keynotes, workshops, and training courses for organizations and leaders of sales professionals looking to take their companies to the next level. Voted a top 15 business growth expert to watch and top 40 motivational speaker, Meredith coaches executives, trains next level leaders, and builds sales teams in our innovative three-step proven system to thrive in uncertainty. To learn more, go to valuespeaker.com. To speak with Meredith directly, book Meredith to speak and learn more about her training programs. That's valuespeaker.com. Visit today.
2: in real estate stocks annuities and other investment vehicles that's the money answer show with jordan goodman on the voice america business channel every monday at 12 p.m pacific standard time think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7
0: You are listening to Thriving in Uncertainty. If you have a question or comment about our program, Meredith would love to hear from you. Her email address is mere at valuespeaker.com. Again, that's mere at valuespeaker.com. Now back to Thriving in Uncertainty.
1: Welcome back to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter how this marketplace changes. Or what the economy does. Well, if you were lucky enough to be with us in our first segment, then you are up to date on the conversation we are having with our guest today, Liz Wiseman. We were talking about, um, right, really getting into your book on um, multipliers, um, how the best leaders make people around them smart. But kind of where we left off was talking about the different type of leaders and the impact that leaders have, and actually. Something that you really noticed in the marketplace that hadn't been researched and hadn't been developed. So, bring us up to speed on that.
2: Well, so with this idea that we seem to be at our best around some leaders, but we hold back and play it safe and are fairly miserable around others. Like, that was this observation that led to my research. That plus this, this other observation I had for my time in management is that there seems to be latent intelligence All around us, that you know, on any given work team, there's more intellect that's available than most managers are using. You know, that there's a lot more intelligence that badges in to the office each morning that gets put to use. And and it was really with those two observations that I went out and looked at what is it that these leaders do that end up multiplying the capability of others. And I studied sort of the, these multiplier leaders and, and their counterparts, these diminisher leaders that cause people to hold back. And I found a number of things. There's probably three main findings. One is I found that these leaders get very different levels of capability from, from the people who work for them. Multipliers get virtually all of people's capability, which is not surprising, but these diminishing leaders get less than half. Wow. And forty eight percent is what came out of the research, and that was done conservatively and you know blind, without these terms, multipliers, and diminishers to, to skew the results, which is so stunning to me because companies are. What it means is companies are paying a dollar toward human capital. Let's call it hundred thousand dollars. Let's say you know the cost of someone on the team may be fully loaded hundred thousand dollars. You're paying that, but you're only getting fifty thousand dollars worth of value. It's like you're throwing away half of that investment in human capital, mm-hmm. which is shocking. Um, this, and then I found that these leaders. The second thing is I, I found that they have a number of things they do very, very differently. You know, one is how they manage talent. The other is the type of environment they create. The third is the way they set direction the fourth is the way they make decisions and the fifth is the way they drive um, for results, the way they execute. And, and I can share some of that. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, like um, maybe a couple uh, in particular, in terms of how they manage talent, you know, diminishers acquire smart people, but the multipliers, they, they attract people. People want to go work for them because they're deeply utilized. They, they see people's what I call their native genius, what they do easily and freely. So so talent flows to these leaders. Um, the second is a kind of work environment that they create. And I think it has everything to do with thriving in uncertainty because these diminishers create an environment of stress. You know, they're tyrants and they're not always these yelling, like hot-headed tyrants, but they just exude. Stress, And we all know leaders like this that just, they're like, you know, that um, that cartoon character from Peanuts, Pigpen, who carries like a, a, a cloud of dust with him everywhere. He goes, these leaders carry a cloud of stress with them and they share it like they infect other people with their stress. And, you know, and we know it basically it dumbs down the parts of our mind that do critical thinking and such. Whereas these multiplier leaders, they are, are more like liberators. They give people space to think, and they create an environment of safety. What Amy Edmonton at the Harvard Business School talks about um, psychological safety. Mm-hmm. But they also create intellectual safety, meaning around these leaders, it's okay to experiment, to take risks, to, to make a mistake to make a mistake and to learn from it and to admit you've made a mistake, you know, so they're, they're leaders around whom you make a mistake once, but not twice. They, they um, create an environment where you can speak out and offer bold ideas where you can disagree. Like all of these are so critical for, for thriving when things are changing, um, the way they set direction, diminishers tend to give directives. They tell people what to do. And rarely do they ask people to do things that they themselves don't know how to do. Which is a perfect way of leading when nothing around you is changing. Right. When, <laughs> right. Like but you know most of us work in an environment where there's too much for one person to know. And mm-hmm. when just when you solve one problem, the problem evolves and changes. And so you're constantly like, you don't face the same problem twice in, in the environment we're working in today, it seems. And these multiplier leaders, they lead through questions.
1: Mm.
2: You know, the best leaders in times of uncertainty don't have the best answers. They have the best questions.
1: Yeah. You know, they
2: know what to ask to, to rally people on the right problem. And they know what to ask to get other people finding solutions. Um, and, and so those are, those are a few examples. Um, the, I could go through the, the fourth and the fifth, but that just gives you a little bit of a flavor for how these leaders operate so differently and why they get such a different level of um, not just energy and commitment, but intellect and capability from the people around them.
1: Which ultimately, which ultimately produces the result. So the question I've got is that um, I do think. I mean, one thing that you're really hitting on is I do believe living in uncertainty that we're living in right now is we need a different type of leader. I mean, it calls for some of the some of the old um, ability to not be an amazing leader was okay because we. There was more fat in the margin. Competition wasn't like it is. So if I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to this, and I'm leading a team. Is, a, um, is this type of leadership something that's instinctual? Is it is something I'm born with? If I'm more of a diminishing type of leader, can I learn to be more of the other? Mm. Well, you know, I am the mother
2: of four children. And what I've known, noticed about raising children is they are born diminishers. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. Right with you. (laughs) You know, like, you know, we are born, I I guess maybe our our 15 seconds on like the human dilemma and the human condition is like, it seems to me now midway through my life that each of us are born with this incredible capacity for good, as well as a pretty significant capacity for wrong and for evil. Like it seems like it's just part of our nature. And I think that is very much the case with leadership is that I think we have in us this capacity to to bring out the best in others. But I think each one of us has like a, a diminisher lurking within us. And this actually brings me, Meredith, um, your question brings me to this third thing we found in this research is that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces is not coming from the tyrannical, hot-headed, narcissistic, like, I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm going to kind of keep everyone else down, I'll do the thinking for everyone, you know, I'll I'll give you your opinion, it's not coming from that kind of leader, it's actually coming from the really well-intended leader. Like, the person who, who aspires to be a good leader, who wants to be a good leader, who who reads management books, uh, people like me who write management books. And I call these uh, people, myself included, accidental diminishers.
1: Mm.
2: And and what I found is it's actually sometimes our most noble intentions that cause us to diminish. And and back to this idea of thriving in uncertainty – That some of the things that leaders are doing that they think is helpful in times of change and uncertainty are the very things that kill innovation and agility and learning and thriving in this kind of chaotic environment.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think for a lot of us, I mean I think one of the biggest challenges I see when I'm out working with organizations, and, and people will ask me, what's the biggest obstacle to success today? And I'll say it's that I see that most people are using strategies and leadership techniques that worked in a different time, and they don't work in the environment right now. I mean I think that one of the things you, you talked about, um, diminishing being very, tell direct. And one of the biggest challenges that I see out there is that getting this next level of leaders and getting leaders who, getting people in your company who are able to think, who are able to problem solve, who are able to um, come up with ideas and solutions, um, we almost leave that out of people if we're not leading in a way that enhances their growth, but actually diminishes it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I,
2: I, I, I want to make sure I heard your term right. We lead it out of people, which yes. is such a brilliant way to put this. Um, let me give you three examples of where people are, are kind of using intuitive ways of leading that actually are fairly destructive to flourishing and thriving. Like one is, hey, we want a creative environment. We want lots of, you know, we want lots of ideas. We need lots of ideas. So one of the ways we accidentally diminish is it's something I am prone to do is to be an idea guy. Like if I'm going to be a fountain of ideas and Hey, let's, let's get ideas flowing. So, you know, these people pop into work. Hey, what about this? I was thinking that maybe we should try this. And they think of course that their ideas are going to stimulate more ideas, but like what actually happens around on a team when the leader is the fountain of ideas, even if they're just trying to get the thinking started, people tend to spend their days chasing ideas. Okay, Liz has got us doing this. Now she's got us doing that. Okay, well, let's try this. And people become idea poor around people who are idea rich. Mm. Stop thinking for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they let the boss do the thinking or the, the leader who really wants an agile team you know, a team that can pivot and change and respond to problems or to opportunities. And so they're fast. They're what I call a rapid responder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they kind of operate with this logic of like, you know, get a text, answer a text, see a bear, shoot a bear is kind of their approach. And we all know what we do when, let's say an email note is sent to us we own it. It's our responsibility, but it's copied to a rapid responder, a boss or a colleague. You know we we have this internal uh, dialogue. We're like, well, should I I'm responsible for this? I should take ownership, but that person's probably already on it, and they are. Mm-hmm. And so we let them do it. And it's actually these rapid responding bosses who think they're creating agility and speed on their team. They're actually creating, um, inaction and inertia, like people just stop around them and wait for the boss to respond, or the big-hearted leader. And you know, there's a lot of a lot of discussion about being kind of like a full-hearted leader, We're loving up our people, caring about our people, which is great. But what happens when people are doing hard things and they're struggling? Like every job I was underqualified for was a job I struggled in. And I think the reason why I thrived at Oracle was because I didn't work around a lot of soft-hearted leaders. Yeah, They were like, they weren't like, oh, Liz, we see you struggling. Why don't we step in here and help? No one took over for me. I was like, I have to figure this out. Nobody, I didn't have leaders who even said, let me do it alongside you. In some ways, they were comfortable allowing me to be uncomfortable yeah like they could they could step back and allow me to suffer and I never felt unloved by my bosses who were really tough you know executives and entrepreneurs I somehow felt supported but they never went in and did my work for me yeah even when I was learning how to do the job and and you know the way we accidentally diminish with the best of intentions is we become rescuers. Mm -hmm. And when you rescue people, even just extending a hand of help, like too early or too often people end up helpless. And, and so often it's doing the very things we think are look like great leadership actually end up causing the people around us to hold back. So most of my work is helping people see where they are, accidentally diminishing and what they can do instead to create more capability around them.
1: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I think you bring up two such great points in the sense that most of the leaders that are diminishing are, one, it's unintentional, and the second is that you're doing the things that you believe are helpful. I had a I had a client this morning who's just a, he's a phenomenal young leader, has serious um, serious potential with a with a company that's growing like crazy. Well, one of the very things that we discussed, one of the very things that we dived into was the fact that all day long his team is pinging him with questions. All day long they're asking him for input and he immediately answers everything. And the challenge with that is that what he's got is when one person leaves or goes to another division and is promoted, he doesn't have talent up under him, um, you know, really ready to take over. The other that you said on this whole piece of, you know, you worked for tough leaders and you felt supported, you felt cared about. But um, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a piece on the incredible gift of struggle that I, that I really started um, studying self-made people. People who had really come from nothing and achieved unbelievable levels of success, whatever your definition of success, they'd achieved it. And the, and the common piece that I found with them was this idea, while everybody had a different story, there hadn't been a net. Nobody had rescued them. Every obstacle in their way, they had had to push Through and get past. So, when we come back from this final break, because I feel like this is the perfect segue into another one of um, your books, Rookie Smarts, where you talk about. I want to go back to where we began this segment, talking about um, the fact that you took positions you were, quote unquote. Unqualified for and where struggle and doing some of that um, uh, really, really fit in. So, in this segment, I feel like we've truly captured um, leadership, but I want to go back in this last segment to the individual and what we can do to really take advantage and thrive in uncertainty. So, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back for one more segment with um, Liz Wiseman. We're going to talk about her book, Rookie Smarts.
2: America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: Are you ready to learn the business strategies you need to succeed no matter what this economy does? Are you interested in learning how the top organizations and how successful leaders are making change work for their companies and using uncertainty as their greatest competitive advantage? Then join the thousands of business owners, sales professionals, and entrepreneurs who have found the answers. Business growth expert, Meredith Elliott Powell, author of Thrive, Strategies for Success in Uncertainty, offers powerful keynotes, workshops, and training courses for organizations and leaders of sales professionals looking to take their companies to the next level. Voted a Top 15 Business Growth Expert to Watch and Top 40 Motivational Speaker, Meredith Coaches Executives, trains next-level leaders, and builds sales teams in her innovative three-step proven system to thrive in uncertainty. To learn more, go to valuespeaker.com. To speak with Meredith directly, book Meredith to speak and learn more about her training programs. That's valuespeaker.com. Visit today.
2: America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You are listening to Thriving in Uncertainty. If you have a question or comment about our program, Meredith would love to hear from you. Her email address is M-E-R-E at Valuespeaker.com. Again, that's M-E-R-E at valuespeaker.com. Now back to Thriving in Uncertainty.
1: Welcome back to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter what this economy does. We are back with our fascinating guest, uh, Liz Wiseman. And Liz, in the last segment, we really focused on leaders and how what we can do is to be a a leader who really... Impacts the people positively around us, but I want to. I, I don't want to leave this show without talking about a book that you wrote that I just think is fascinating. Rookie Smarts: Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. And one reason I really want to focus on it is because, as we've been talking about in this show, you really um, things are moving so fast that even if you take a job that you're qualified for, that job will require you to learn and to grow. So take us back to how you came up with a concept for this, you know, for this book, the um, kind of the research behind it. Um, well, you know, the
2: book explores um, how being underqualified can actually be an advantage. And the book began, honestly, it, it began as a rant. So I was going to meet with my publisher. We're in New York City, uh, and I am going there to talk with her about my next book. So I've written Multipliers, and that has been um, a delightful, surprising success, and so, which has given me an opportunity to do a new book. And I go there, and I've got a few ideas to pitch to her, and I start on this rant. And I said, you know, Hollis, it's this is Hollis at HarperCollins." And particularly, she she runs the Harper Business imprint. I'm like, you know, I've just always felt like that somehow we're actually at our best when we know the least. Like every job I've had, you know, when I was underqualified, where I was at the bottom half of that learning curve was actually where I did my best work. It's actually at the point where I start to know what I am doing that I get dangerous. And And I'm ranting about this. And she said, Liz, that's your next book. I'm like, oh, no, that's my personal rant. That's autobiographical. That's just me trying to make sense of this crazy career I've had. And she said, no, I think there's something there. So I actually decided I would go in and try to study what happens when we're, we're, when we're new to something important and hard. And there is something, particularly when it's important. Now, now we're not brilliant when we're new to everything, and and I'm not suggesting that you know um, you want a rookie surgeon. <laughs> you know, someone's going to drill in your body or in your mouth. You probably want someone who's been well supervised and well trained. But when it comes to a lot of types of knowledge work, particularly things that need innovation. And strangely, things that require speed, we do tend to work at our best. So I looked at all of these different work scenarios, and I looked at a given scenario and looked at how an experienced person tackles that versus how an inexperienced person tackles that. And what I found is that inexperienced people, at minimum, seem to perform at par, but in many cases actually perform better, particularly when it comes to innovation It's not surprising that when we're new, we tend to, um, we don't have assumptions. We, um, we don't have limitations. We're often just not limited by the fact that it's, that it's hard. So we tend to be more creative and more innovative, but we also tend to be faster to get work done because we're just a little bit desperate. You know, we, um, are a little bit self-conscious. We feel that all eyes are on us. And what what I found sort of in in short is that when we're new to something that's important because we go into this heightened awareness mode, Mm -hmm. heightened questioning mode, um, heightened need to perform, when we're new to something important and hard, a learner's advantage kicks in. And we tend to do our best thinking and our best work. You know, we ask, questions. We get resourceful. And I think anyone knows you probably are at your most resourceful when you lack resources. Mm-hmm. And once we get experienced, you know, we may bring a lot of expertise to it, but we also um, you know, stop seeing. We start assuming we know what the problem looks like. But as we talked about before, the problem has likely morphed on you. You know, I did some interesting calculations and some research as I was trying to study this. And when I looked at the rate at which, um, you know, how fast our business cycles are turning, and the amount of new information coming at us, and how quickly information is becoming obsolete, you know, things don't stay true for very long. That what I calculated is, if you work in a a STEM field, science, technology, engineering. Or math, or any field that has a heavy technology component to it. Like retail right now is heavily technology infused. That about 15% of what we know today, so that's one five, between 10 and 20% of what we know today is likely to be relevant in five years.
1: Wow. Isn't that staggering? Yeah, that is. Yeah. Here's what kills me about that is
2: we don't even know what fifteen percent that is, right? You know so as as learners, you know we need to make sure that it's not what we know that matters, it's how fast we can learn. Like that becomes the currency of today's work environment. is how fast you can learn. And as leaders, we we need to move beyond telling people what to do. We need to be able to lead people into the unknown. You know, we need to have the right questions, not the right answers.
1: Um, you've you've said a couple of things that are that I really want to because um, this really brings the whole show together, and that is that. So so here I am. I'm 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 taking a job and to, to and to get comfortable with the fact that maybe I don't have all the answers and that I'm going to be in learning mode. And I love that you said something about. Physicians, because we were just talking about this the other day, and while you may not want a physician who's right out of school and doesn't have a lot of surgeries under their belt, at the same time, you may not want a surgeon who's at the end of their career, because like any of us, when we get to the end of our career, we just get to a point where it's like, eh. I don't want to learn that. I'm tired. You know, I've accomplished things. I'm I'm ready for the next um, for the next chapter. So there there is that piece in there. But I love that you said learning is the new currency because I, I want the listeners to to grasp that whether you are an employee who is working somewhere and you you know that your value to that company is going to be in how much you're willing to learn. But as a leader, if I'm understanding you correctly, Liz, my job is to really. Get my people comfortable with learning and growing and changing. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Your job as a leader is
2: to harvest the full intelligence of your team, like to use every ounce of intelligence and talent and insight and capability that people bring to work. That's kind of what the multiplier leader does is they harvest it, but not to end there, but To grow it like your job as a leader is to keep your team learning at the speed of work, like learning faster than the environment around you is changing.
1: Mm -hmm. I I do think that the um, you know, when you think about the fact that I think the way that we hire and we bring on employees so much has changed these days in that. You almost want to hire more for some of the soft skills or some of the values you have in the organization, because what you hire for people for today is not going to be the job they're going to be doing a year from now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we need to hire for a learning quotient. And, you know, we need leaders who are willing to, it, you know, we, we need people. Like if I were hiring people, I would want confidence and self-awareness together, Mm -hmm. juxtaposed because I think we're at our most powerful when we are self-confident but situationally lacking confidence meaning I'm facing a new situation I don't know what I'm doing but I'm aware that I don't know what I'm doing I'm aware I'm disadvantaged I'm an underdog I'm a rookie but inside of me is self-confidence meaning you know what I've been here before. I've walked through the valley of death before and and come out like I've, I've been in this place of frustration and doubt and not knowing if it's going to work out and if I can learn this. And I'm confident that I have the raw intelligence or the perseverance or the grit, as Angela Duckworth calls this, that I can get through it. And so we want people who have native self-confidence but the humility and self-awareness to know that that situationally you're facing something new—that's a powerful combination.
1: I, I would agree with that. I think the irony is that the, the age of uncertainty—the moment that you take security away—we all become insecure. I mean, it's something that tends to erode um, our confidence. And so, where does one begin? Is confidence something that can be built, you know, built, gained? I mean, how does how does one, you know, work on that piece?
2: Well, I think uh, my mom says something to me once. We were working together on a project. We actually wrote a book together, and oh, that's she, great. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I thought at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom had a nervous breakdown in the middle, and and all of her confidence. I pulled her out of retirement, and I made a critical error as a leader because I was the leader in this project. Is I was like, "Mom, you're brilliant," and I just gave her all these things that were huge to do, mm. and I didn't slice it well enough, and she got to the point where she's like, I don't even know how to begin. Like she had lost her confidence. And I was telling her like, mom, you can do this. And I was giving her this like pathetic little um, pep talk. And she said, Elizabeth, she doesn't call me Liz. She calls me Elizabeth. Um, She said, you can't give me confidence. I can only build it myself. And, And so then it's a matter of like, It's one of the art forms as a leader is how tight do you stretch the rubber band in terms of a stretch challenge. And I, I know myself. I'm an overstretcher of people. I don't like to under, you know. I don't want to give someone something that's too small. I want to give them a big hard job. But I've learned to size that right and to build confidence. You somehow have to go back to these little micro challenges and rebuild it. Like okay, there's a small thing I did. Now I can do something bigger. And so it's really mastering the art form of taking these new challenges and saying, okay, this is all foreign to me, but not all of it is foreign. There's parts I do know how to do. There's parts I'm naturally good at. How do I take those with me? And the parts I don't know, what can I learn fast?
1: Yeah. So it's almost, it's almost like a series of little wins you know, it is, yeah, it is hard to believe, but we have come to basically to the close of our hour, and I do not want my listeners to to stop listening to this show without finding out how to how, where to find your books, where to find out more about you, um, and uh, and your work, so that they can continue this conversation. Because I think it's been so critical the lessons we've covered here today for thriving in uncertainty. So, how do they get a hold of you, Liz?
2: Oh, okay. Well, let me
1: see. Um, there is a website,
2: thewisemangroup.com. So, that's the name of the, our firm, very sort of uncreatively named, <laughs> eponymously named The Wiseman Group. And there you can get information about the work we do, but maybe even more importantly about the book. So, there's Multipliers and Rookie Smarts and the books are available pretty much everywhere. And I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm at Liz Wiseman on Twitter. And there's um, there's a lot of videos, little segments of various talks and snippets from the book. So
0: I don't know everywhere.
2: That's a pathetic answer perhaps no
1: I would I really encourage um, uh, my listeners to follow you on LinkedIn to go to the to um, to your website because there's a lot of really great information um, there I got to check to make sure we're connected because I am going to definitely continue this conversation and I would love to have you back on um, as a guest I think this has been really great information some of the big learnings that I've taken away from um, today are number one I love this idea that learning is currency and you can really ask yourself Are you a leader that is doing the things that is tapping in to get everything from your team? Because your team is your greatest competitive um, advantage. And not to be afraid of not knowing it all, that you can learn and be in wonderful positions. So, again, thank you, Liz. Thank you, listeners. And, And thank you for another wonderful show. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of
0: Thriving in Uncertainty. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Thriving in Uncertainty. Please join your host, Meredith Elliott Powell, for another program next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This week, embrace the change in your business and yourself.